2: C 13 Originals.
3: Well, when Butch Crouch squared up with somebody, he would put a hurting on you. He would hit you just whatever was available. He hit you with a bottle, a chair, whatever. Whatever. It depended on the degree of severity, you know. He was a stand-up guy. He was uh, not something to toy with, and uh, he was very loyal. And you saw the loyalty that he invoked from people from different states, from different cities, different clubs,
4: and then, in turn, he would expect the same. This is Matt Zanaskar, Matsey was a former president of the Cleveland Hells Angels and a 20-year member. He was retired from the club in 1991, but he's been in a few life-or-death fights alongside my father, and they were close friends in the 1970s.
3: He was a Louisiana country boy from down south. I really don't know how he found his way up to Cleveland, but uh, the first time that I recall meeting him, which was... uh, at Ted's Bar up on Lakeshore Boulevard, uh, right close to the border of Euclid and Cleveland. And uh, I walks in the bar with this other fella, and there's Crouch. He's in an argument with this guy named Paul Horn. Paul Horn was a little bit of a a tough guy in that particular Far East side of Cleveland. Somewhat of a bully, you know, and anyway they had an argument evidently cuz right when i walk in they're arguing and then next thing you know they pulled guns on one another
5: we're singing
4: I'm Jackie Taylor, and this is Relative Unknown. My real name is Jackie Crouch. Jackie Taylor is the name that was given to me by the U.S. Marshals when I was seven years old and put into the witness protection program. We were relocated and any ties to the Crouch name were cut off completely. Less than a year later, my father left and I'd only see him one more time before he killed himself. And his wife and stepson in 2013. Since then, I've been trying to fill in the blanks in both of our stories.
6: You got the white one and the black one.
4: Come on here. My father was from Shreveport, Louisiana, and like Matsey said, he was totally country. Yeah. And so was his family.
5: Here they come. Come on.
6: Come on. Woo. Woo. Get, get your
5: ass in that pen. <coughs> In.
4: Earlier this year, I went to visit my cousin, Trisha Ann Griffith. Trisha's mom was my Auntie Frida, Butch's sister, and my Uncle Harry is her stepdad. Trisha lives in Lucky, Louisiana, and when I arrived, she and her son were trying to get their baby pigs back into the pen.
5: I'll stand on the side of that fence in the middle. There they go, Fred! Get in there. Shit! Got him twisting in there. What happened after him? Round it up, boys.
4: <laughs> That's <laughs> what <laughs> I'm talking about. out, what I'm Is that where they got out? You oh, little shit. Have you lost any? No, we only
6: got
4: six. Is there all six in there? Yeah.
6: Yeah. yeah. Because this is actually going to be my chicken coop. Oh. Yeah. Sir. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Get up ready. Thank you for helping us. Oh, yeah. Well, we are ride them up in time. I'll bring my horse next
4: time. Trisha got a fire going, and we sat down next to it to talk. See, the stories that Mama always
6: told me about Uncle Butch, they was mostly good stories, but now she would tell me that, like, if, She got picked on as she got older, you know, and the guys would mess with her or something like that. Now, she would go and tell him, and he would go and straighten them out. But as far as the violence or anything like that, you know, she didn't say what he did. She just said he took care of it. That was all she told me.
4: I know she was afraid of his temper.
6: I never saw the temper. I just saw the good side. Yeah. I remember now the houseboat we had. Mm hmm so we used to have a houseboat when we was growing up off of Toledo Bend. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that's before he went to prison. He stayed on the houseboat because nobody knew where it was and nobody knew where he was, but we did. But then I remember right after he got out of prison, he came come and stayed with me for a little bit. He had a new name, but I never called him by the new name. I didn't know no Uncle Paul. All I knew was Uncle Butch. He was like, "Don't call me that.
4: I'm Uncle." No, you're not. I asked Tricia Ann if she was ever afraid of what could happen to her after my family was put into the safe house in Florida and placed into the federal witness protection program. Me?
6: No. I'm not scared of nothing. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just not. I'm um, no man, no beast, no nothing. I just. I mean, i am knock people in the head with frying pans, you know. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. There was an ex-husband. He hit me. No. Mistake. First, I hit him in the head with a glass pan, and it cracked it, bust his head open. Then he got up and hit me again. Then I took the frying pan and knocked him smooth out and then called the popos to come drag him off. Sorry, you know, so, no, I was not nervous about anybody coming to look for me or, you know, or anything like that because, you know, I mean, Mama had warned us, you know, whatever you do, just be careful what you do and how you do it. You know, because there are people out there that are looking for your uncle and he might come through us to get to him. And I was like, okay. And then I started hearing the stories, you know, about him killing people and people looking for him. And then people are, you know, looking for us and everything else, you know. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, you know, let me step back here and recognize what's going on here. Because, uh-uh, no, uh uh-uh.
4: I wanted to know more about the way my father grew up. His mother was deaf, and I can remember him teaching me some sign language when I was little. Trishanne Ann was my grandmother's favorite.
6: She made sounds, but she couldn't talk like me and you. She always called me baby. And she'll say, baby, baby. You know, I mean, I can understand her because I was around her a lot, but some people, other people couldn't understand her, you know. But that's the way she would talk because she went deaf. If I got the story correctly from what I've understood from mama, that her and her mama had caught the scarlet fever, and her mama died, and granny went deaf.
4: According to an article in the Natchitoches Times, printed on January 18, 1918, when my grandmother was just two years old, it was meningitis, not scarlet fever, which tore through her house. She was one of seven children. Her mother and three brothers died, and my grandmother lost her hearing. She went on to have six children of her own from three different men. And my father, Clarence Addie Crouch, born in 1940, was her oldest. Here, a passage from his manuscript.
2: After my father died, my mother was left to raise all of us the only way she knew, by walking for miles from daylight to dark, doing what the deaf people call selling, which is going into any bar and handing out little cards with an alphabet printed in sign language on them. As the deaf community is very clannish, we children were raised in the deaf clubs every weekend where the jukebox was always turned all the way up and the sounds of screaming from the parents calling after their children was deafening. The children would scream at each other too. Over the years, I seen my mother come home with legs so swollen she couldn't walk for two days. Other times she was brought home by the police because she'd been robbed or raped or both. Sometimes so beat up that she had to stay in bed for a week. Once someone threw sand in her eyes and it caused her not to see for a week. So she took two of us along with her to guide her around while she got enough money for food for us. My grandmother on my father's side hated my mother and tried for years to have all of us children taken away by the courts. So because of this, we went from town to town only with what we could carry in a suitcase, trying to stay ahead of the law and Grandma. Grandma had declared Mama incompetent, and we children were placed in a state home.
4: By nine years old, my dad was sent by the juvenile court to an orphanage. And at ten, he was sent to a boy's home. Then he came back and began to earn a reputation.
7: His first nickname was Lulu L-U-L-U. Anybody could walk the streets with Lulu for a handle. Yeah, they some balls.
4: This is my Uncle Ed. I'd never spoken with Ed until a few months ago when I tracked him down living in a VA hospital in San Francisco.
7: He was like a prize fighter or something. He was unbeaten.
4: Would you consider him a bully or did he... No,
7: no, no. You could call him up to protect you. Everybody just loves the shit out of him. You like a hero kind of
4: guy. Kind of, Uncle Ed like is Butch's younger brother. Yeah, and yeah, as of this year, dead. his only living sibling. What was he like as a kid growing up with, like having a guy like that as your brother? Oh, well, it was
7: wonderful. He he turned me on to a the first time when I was like 15 years old. And uh, we used to go hunting out of the car at night, the flashlight. he light up the deer or the rabbit or whatever. Light up their eyes and they're kind of like frozen in the and they can't move, so you just shoot them. And he told me how to do that and how to take care of myself. And how to, he told me if uh if somebody ever convinces you that they're going to kill you, then just uh, you have to get up first thing in the morning, and go kill them, take them out and into the Just get in your car and drive and drive and drive and back roads and stuff and just you don't know where you are. And then bury them as deep as you can and then you don't even know where they are. So you can't betray yourself. Listen, I'm gonna get off the phone a little while. I need to take a little nap.
4: As bizarre and disjointed as my Uncle Ed's memories of my father were, They helped to paint a picture of a teenager with no guidance, beginning down a path toward a life of violence. And sure enough, this article from the Houston Press, printed in 1959, was in my father's trunk.
8: A 19-year-old high school student accused of stabbing another youth after making sure the victim had no weapon was caught by police. Jailed after a brief chase was Clarence Lulu Crouch, who has a record of two previous arrests. Crouch was charged with assault to murder following a battle in a hallway of an apartment building in which 19-year-old Ben Ellison was critically stabbed. Young Ellison told police Crouch had crashed a party the night before and was thrown out by Ellison. He said Crouch threatened to get him, and at midnight the following night, he showed up at Ellison's apartment accompanied by five friends. The gang forced Ellison into the hallway to be sure he didn't have a weapon, police were told, and the friends circled the victim to be sure he didn't escape. Then Crouch drew a knife and stabbed him. Ellison is still in a hospital recovering from two deep stab wounds. In jail, Crouch refused to say anything.
4: My dad was charged with assault to murder with malice, and he was given a sentence of two to five years in prison in Huntsville, Texas. And this is where he begins his story, on the very first page of his manuscript, Hate and Discontent. These are his first words.
2: If someone were to ask how I got involved in motorcycle gangs in the first place, I guess the answer would be that it all started in the Texas prison. About six months before I got out in October of 62, the guy in the next bunk noticed it first and snapped me to it. We were on the wind farm just outside of Huntsville, which was just off the highway. Our bunks were right next to the window and... We could hear and see this guy on a Harley as he went back and forth to work each day. He had some real nice pipes on that old hog and the sound would echo across into the window. It sounded like he was talking to us. The sound of freedom as he would get on it all the way down the highway. Every day we would be there at 6 a.m. and 5 p.m. listening at the window. When I got out, I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going back like everybody else. I got the five years for assault to murder because I'd cut up this guy named Benny Ellison at a party one night. But everybody in the joint seemed to be there for the same thing, robbery, dope, burglary, and checks. But all the time I was there, I only knew two guys who were in the joint for pimping. So I started running as many whores as I could find, which Houston was full of them, and it was nothing to find some dirty leg in a bar. Buy her some clothes and spot her in a hotel downtown with the same old promise of her working long enough to get enough for us to open a bar. I ran 17 whores out of one house. Made a lot of money, but damn if I know what happened to it. I had one hell of a good time blowing all that money though. Then, one day a cop car came sliding in the driveway and two cops in plain clothes came out with guns. I ran through the house and out the back door as they came in the front. They started shooting into closets and anywhere else they thought I was hiding. When I got to my car, their car was blocking mine in. So I just jumped in their car and hit it north. I stopped in this gas station and paid this guy to take me to Shreveport. After this, I got me a 49 pan chopper and I never wore a suit again unless I was in court. I let my beard grow and started only riding motorcycles.
9: Why don't you people
5: go
4: home? Get out of
5: here, all you
4: The voice you hear screaming for people to go home belongs to Ralph Sonny Barger. Sonny is a legendary founding member and former longtime president of the Oakland Hells Angels. Here, it's 1965 and the Vietnam War was raging. Sonny and a small group of angels are breaking up a Vietnam War protest in Oakland. Five of them were arrested. And later, Sonny held a press conference where he read a letter he'd sent to President Johnson.
3: President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1600, Pennsylvania Ave, Washington, D.C. Dear Mr. President, on behalf of myself and my associates, I volunteer a group of loyal Americans for behind-the-line duty in Vietnam. We feel that a crack group of trained guerrillas could demoralize the Viet Cong and advance the cause of freedom. We are available for training and duty immediately. Sincerely, Ralph Barger, Hells Angels, Oakland, California.
4: If the 1960s were about counterculture, nobody was more counter to the culture than Sonny Barger and the Hells Angels. They were welcomed to an acid party with Ken Kesey and his merry band of pranksters, and they provided security for the Grateful Dead Here, Geraldo Rivera speaks with Jerry Garcia.
5: They aren't the 4-H club, and they aren't the Boy Scouts (coughs) of America. The Hells Angels are uh, uh, a motorcycle club that is generally known as an outlaw motorcycle club and that has had numerous brushes with the law. Uh Uh, Does any of those kinds of things affect the way you feel about them?
0: No, because I'm sort of an outlaw space myself, you know what I mean? I'm no heavy-duty outlaw, but, you know are you afraid of them ever sure <laughs> sure why because they're scary man you know they're they're all big you know and strong and and good at in in all the violent spaces you know they got that covered you know i mean scary is what one of the things hell's angels are
2: the bike rider is Cliff workman treasurer of the hell's angels the wildest bunch of outlaws to come out of the west and killing the kid He's here to challenge his biographer, a tense
0: young literary journalist named Hunter Thompson.
4: Author Hunter S. Thompson was as counterculture as it got, and he'd launched his career in 1967 with the book about the Hells Angels. This audio is from a television appearance that year where Cliff Workman, an original Oakland member, rode his bike into the studio and then had words with Thompson about why the club had a falling out with him.
5: All right, this man here, you got into a man's personal argument. That's a not right lie. No, no, it ain't that, it. This uh, is my side of what happened. Okay. You weren't there, so why don't you preface it with that? This is what, this is what happened. Junkie George was beating his old lady. Junkie George? <laughs> well, this is what happened. Junkie George was beating his old lady. I Junkies right George, right. Junkie right. George's dog... Now, well, to this. Junkie George's dog bit him, right? <laughs> But to I didn't me, this that. is a personal feud. Fan- if a guy it. wants to beat his wife and his dog bites him, that's between the three of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. Here, here came the peacemaker, right? He doesn't have a patch on. He isn't in the club, you know? And Junkie George is stiff. You walked, you walked right up to him and you said, Only a punk beats his wife and dog. And you backed up. He finished and he an said, Hunter, you want you want some of this? And you said, no. But you got it anyway. And when he hit you, three or four others of them hit you too.
4: Workman's appearance may have reinforced the media's image of the anti-establishment, anti-social biker. But he also had a clear message for anybody listening. One that riders like him all feel.
5: See, actually, there are none of us that care what anybody thinks. I don't give a damn. If they don't like me
9: on my motorcycle, it's too bad. A lot of us have always loved the anti-hero, and you love the power, you love the strength, and the more rules that some of us are handed, the more we like to push back.
4: Bill Hayes has been riding motorcycles since 1965, and he's one of the most prolific authors on the biker culture with titles like The One Percenter Encyclopedia and American Biker. The history, the clubs, the lifestyle, the truth. And Hayes says there's three main things that draw people to a motorcycle club.
9: The attitude and the machine can be one, really, because, you know, if motorcycles were for everyone, everyone would be riding one, and they're not, and they don't. So you have those two things kind of coalescing, the attitude and the machine, and it feels really good <laughs> to jump on a bike and, and just go, for some people. <laughs> Others, they're scared to death. When you're talking about the group, now you bring a third feeling into the mix. Now you bring camaraderie into the attitude and the machine. And that camaraderie, there's nothing like it. It's not a family you're born into. It's a family you've earned your way into, and so it's in many ways stronger than blood, and the path represents that brotherhood, and uh, it is sacred.
4: Just to give you a sense of the importance of the patch to my father, it was written in his manuscript 421 times. The first patch he wore after prison was with the Rodbenders, then the Grim Reapers, Then, in 1966, he was a founding member of the Banditos Motorcycle Club in Houston. While Butch was riding around the South building Banditos charters, the Hells Angels, behind Sonny Barger, were expanding across the country, both in numbers and reputation. In 1969, the Hells Angels were invited to a free concert at Altamont Speedway in Northern California. They were allegedly given $500 worth of beer and access to the stage. The Rolling Stones were headlining, and during their set, things in the crowd got violent. Hey,
8: hey, will you do it? And i try and stop it. Hey, hey people, sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Come on now, that means everybody just cool out.
4: As Mick Jagger tried to calm the crowd, an 18-year-old man named Meredith Hunter was stabbed to death by an angel.
5: What happened here, anyway? Yeah, He pulled out a gun. Huh? He did. Yes, Which the Hell's he Angels took the gun away from him. One of them has it now. He showed it to me, uh-huh. and uh, they uh, proceeded to put him down on the ground and start kicking him. And he has a couple stab wounds on his back and uh, one over his ear. Fox, 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 Fox. Tried to keep him alive, and uh, when we got here, the doctor checked him out, and yeah, we sit. pronounced him dead funny.
4: Uh-huh. Hunter was brandishing a gun, so the Angel was acquitted on self-defense. But the scene, and the aftermath, was made famous in the Maisel Brothers documentary, Gimme Shelter. Later that night, Sonny Barger called into a local radio station to speak his piece.
3: Mick Jagger had the people sit down. Well, you know what? You grab on Mick Jagger and ask him who told him to tell the people to sit down. I, that's you know, what I told him to tell the people to sit down. And if anybody was there in the front rows can remember me walking over and telling them, you know what? If you tell these people to sit down and be cool, the people in the back can see a little bit. And this show will get on and we can get it going. And he done it. Like, this Mick Jagger, like, he used us for dupes, man. You know, and as far as I'm concerned, we were the biggest suckers for that idiot that I can ever
2: see.
4: Some called what happened at Altamont the end of the age of free love, and it forever tied the angels to the 1960s. By that point, my father had already turned in his banditos patch and moved out to San Francisco to live with his brother, Ed. He traveled out there with the goal of becoming an angel. And after spending a year getting to know the members, he wrote that he was finally brought to Sonny Barger's house in Oakland to meet the man himself.
2: Now, Sonny Barger is the kind of guy that has had the same phone number for years. He talks to people all across the states. He writes down all the information he can about clubs and bikers, and he asks all he can about the man in a certain town, how many bikers are in that town, their age, and so forth. And over the years, he keeps up with different clubs and their members. We got to the garage and Sonny started telling me that he had heard a lot about me over the last few years, which blew my mind because I was in complete awe of this man anyway. To me, he had been the one that started everything that I had believed in for years. He was like a god of some kind to me and a lot of people. To have him tell me that he knew all about me for years was something else. Then he told me that a bunch of Cleveland brothers had been put in jail for killing two people in a bar called Bardo's Cafe just a few years after they got their charter. He wanted me to go to Cleveland and help rebuild the Hells Angels there. He said that if we took our time and we were cool, we could build something that couldn't be broken apart. He told me all we had to do was be true to the patch and put it before ourselves because Hells Angels was something bigger than all of us.
4: Once my dad got to Cleveland, he quickly got his Hell's Angel patch. He began rebuilding the charter there and became the club's vice president. To keep the charter strong, they needed to prevent other clubs from getting stronger in Ohio. And in 1971, an ongoing feud with an MC called The Breed was coming to a head. According to my father, the angels were discussing The Breed in their weekly meetings, which they called church.
2: We had been doing a lot of talking in church about The Breed and what to do about them. We found out that they had come to Ohio and set up charters in Akron and on the west side. Then a cop car pulled in front of the clubhouse one day and told us they had word that the breed were going to attack us at this bike show coming up. The man said that over 100 of them were supposed to show up. We were going to sell bumper stickers saying, support your local Hells Angels, and we had already rented some space at the hall, so there was no way we weren't going to the show. I figured all the out-of-town breed members would be staying somewhere in the same house together, and they would be suckers for a couple chicks. So I sent my girl Hillbilly and her friend Lee, and they were snatched up by them at the bar and and taken to this apartment for two days. When they came back, they were screaming about wanting to go back and poison every motherfucker in that apartment. They said that they were talking about some big meeting they had where they were going to go to a bike show and weren't leaving until they stripped all of us of our patches. During our next church, we talked about throwing grenades in the windows of the apartment, or sending the girls over there with poison, or hitting them with machine guns. But the theme of the whole meeting became that we were gonna go in there as men and not go sneaking around and shooting them in the back like the punk shit that we expected them to pull. We decided to put out word to all the other charters for as many members as we could get to come to the bike show. Groover told me that he and a few other guys like Vinny were coming in from New York. When Groover got to Cleveland, I took him down to this shop where the owner had a knife sharpening business and he put a good edge on my buck knife. He told me that the knife was too sharp and only good for cutting meat. Me and Groover laughed and said, that's all we use a buck knife for anyway.
4: It was Saturday, March 6th, 1971. And my dad, along with about 26 other Angels members, headed down to a building called the Polish Women's Hall, which was the site of the motorcycle show. Matt Zanaskar, who you heard at the beginning of this episode, was a hangaround at the time, trying to prove himself worthy of joining the club. He and another hangaround arrived at the same time as my dad did with Groover.
3: We all four of us show up at the same time at the door. Crouch acknowledges me and my friend. I'm basically a nobody. You know what I'm saying? Me and my friend, we're nobodies. We are walking in, and all of a sudden, you see wall-to-wall breed. So whatever minute conversation it was about, hey, there may be some trouble or this or that, never would you expect it to be so wall-to-wall.
2: We could see nothing inside but breed patches. At the door, there was a cop, and he was telling everyone that they had to leave their sticks and clubs there with them. These couple of breed were telling him that there was no way they were going to leave their knives with him. And if he wanted them, then he should try to take them off their legs where they had these scabbards. But the cop was uptight and looking all around for help and then just said, go on. We just blew by him, yelling at the breed to get the fuck out of the way because hell's angels were coming through.
4: There were about 800 people inside the Polish Women's Hall and just a handful of policemen. Mike Dugan was one of them.
0: We were called in to go to Polish Women's Hall with two or three other cars, which would be six, possibly as many as eight officers. And uh, this is supposed to be a motorcycle show for the Hells Angels, it always is. The breed was told not to show up. All of a sudden, they walked in in mass.
2: Groover leaned over and said, bro, we better get down by that stage where everyone else is because I see some breed here from up in our area and they want me bad. We had to plow our way down the aisle through all these breed, so as I was pushing them to the side, they would turn around and see us, then start looking behind us to see how many more there was behind them. I started yelling over my shoulder to Groover. The cops are gonna shit when Sonny and all those Hells Angels from California start coming in. I don't know how 200 Hells Angels are gonna fit in here. Groover picked up on it and was echoing me as we went along, yelling the same thing over and over, back and forth to each other. We could hear the breed that we passed saying to each other, did you hear what he said? There's 200 more Hells Angels outside coming in here, and Sonny Barger is here too.
4: But there wasn't any help on the way. Butch was trying to gain whatever mental edge he could. He and the Angels were outnumbered by the breed almost seven to one.
0: I was positioned at the back closer to the doors and there was that sense, of, you know, they, it's always hard to describe, but you, you, you know it when you feel it, that underlying tension, that like all of a sudden the temperature of the room has went down 40 degrees.
3: Crouch uh, had uh, <laughs> some words for someone that was giving him the bad eye. He told me, he says, why don't you give me some fucking head? so we're walking through there and uh and there was 32 of us all together you know i think it was three or four of us that were hangarounds and uh this one cop that was there he was counting them as the breed were coming in they were taking a head count there was 205 and we walked through that crowd to get to where we wanted to be with basically our own people you know to see what the hell's going on there
2: we got up next to the stage and our President Freddie said, we better get it because if they get it started, we ain't gonna stop them. So he said, pass the word, we go in one minute. Fuck these motherfuckers. I took a couple steps back and with my head to the breed, looked all up and down the line as word reached everyone. I caught Groover's eye and he made a little fist like pulling out from his chest. And there was a sign we made to each other of catch you later. To the left of me was Matt and Whitey, who were about the same size at 5'10 and about 180 pounds, but they both were built real solid and powerful. Both of them were just leaning back against the stage with their arms crossed and looking relaxed. I heard Freddie say, okay, let's get it, real low. And then he picked up this two by four foot sign that said Harley Davidson. And as he threw it at him, he yelled, fuck the breed. As the sign was coming down on these breed with a loud crash, I turned around and knocked this one guy out cold as he was looking up at the sign flying through the air. I'd always heard these fights called rumbles, but I never knew the reason till that moment. When all those motorcycle boots start stomping on that wooden floor, it started rumbling through that hall like thunder. The sound kept growing louder and louder until I expected lightning to crack at any moment. Plus, there was this real loud high-pitched noise that I could feel almost vibrating in my head. It turned out to be an electric guitar that was dropped by the guitar player when the fight broke out and it landed on the amp. So all the time the fight was going on, there was this real loud whine from the speakers on the stage that was vibrating that whole place. There
3: was a member there from Oakland. (laughs) He didn't know who I was. He broke a chair over my back, a wooden chair. That brought me to my knee, but I jumped up, you know. There was a handful for everybody. You didn't want to take your focus off what was in front of you or to the side of you. It was self-defense combat as best as you could do. Punching, kicking, whatever you could do. You know, in fact, the chair that Russell got me with, uh, I ended up using that on a couple people. And then I noticed Groover, he hits the floor. I grab him, I drag him out of that inferno when the shit's getting down and I just drag him and put him up against the stage and I see he's starting to turn pale and I went back into the brawl
2: at first the breed were backing up and we were charging into him I punched this one guy that looked real young and I knew I caught him good and he was out but as I turned to my right and punched another one out of the corner of my eye I could still see this young guy standing as I turned to hit him again I seen something coming down at me from over him and at the same time i threw up my left hand and seen that it was a knife with one of those long double-edged blades it went between my fingers and the force of it drove my hand back down to my chest and the blade went in right over my heart but my hand was against my chest holding it from going in all the way and the kid fell to the side and i seen this guy about 35 standing there he had been holding up the kid in front of him by the back of the kid's collar as the kid fell to the floor and out from between us, the guy stepped towards me and grabbed my left shoulder with his left hand, trying to drive the knife into my heart. He was about my size and we were eye to eye and our faces were only inches apart. He had this grin on his face and he said, die, motherfucker, die. I had never even thought of pulling my buck knife up to this point, And that's all I remember doing was just thinking about it and. It was there in my right hand. The guy was pulling himself up as he was trying to pull the knife down into me. His eyes were above mine now, and I was pushing with all my might, up with my left hand. I hit him below the belt with my buck and pulled up. I thought I missed him because there was no drag on my knife. And then as we were looking at each other's eyes, I seen his expression change. He started slipping down below my eye level, and I said, Oh yeah, motherfucker, you die, you die. At the same time, I pushed his knife back out of my chest and he slid down with his eyes still looking up at me and then rolling up and glazing over. My legs were all wet and I seen it was blood. The smell coming up as his guts fell out and spilled down between us is when I knew I didn't miss him. That smell was all over me. I just went nuts then and I started slashing everyone with a breed patch around me. I was about 20 feet away from any member and in the middle of all of these breed when I felt this pain in my back and seen nothing but a white flash in the floor when I fell. I was lying on my stomach and my arms were under me. I could hear someone saying, get his patch. I didn't know it at the time, but I was stabbed in the spine and was paralyzed from the waist down. So all I could move was the top half of my body. As I tried to get the knife ready to slash out at the guy pulling on my patch, I heard him say, he's still fucking alive. And then another voice say, kill him and hurry up and get his patch. I drew my arm back, and at the same time, he drew back the knife in his hand. We hit each other at the same time. He hit me in the chest right next to the other stab wound over my heart, and I hit him in the left side, and that buck went all the way in, and he let out a ooh as he fell over me, at the same time pulling the buck out of my hand and leaving his in my chest. I pulled it out, and blood started pumping out of the hole. I looked out and there was all this blood running real slow across the floor.
3: Butch took a couple of knife wounds, one in the back is what really hurt him, and uh, he uh, gutted some guy. He stuck the knife in and as he was going down, he kept driving that knife up into the chest cavity of the guy in front of him. There was a lot of blood. There was a lot of blood and the whole thing, it seems to me that it happened so fast, so fast and with such intensity. There was people laying around, the breed laying around, people hobbling, crawling, breed were retreating, they were running out of the hall so I bolted out the door, and I got the car, and I brought it over, and we loaded up some people, and uh, we got the hell out of there.
4: The Cleveland Plain dealer reported, quote, dead and injured were scattered about the floor, and cyclists were pouring out of the building trying to escape. Nearby, on Marble Avenue, it read, patrolman Mike Dugan was pointing a rifle at a 20-year-old Akron man. He tried to kill me, said Dugan. Here again is Mike Dugan. There was
0: blood all over the place, blood in the street as they were flooding out, and I had seen one individual bend over and his jacket right up enough to see that there was a large hunting knife. I grabbed him and threw him up against the telephone pole, and he was considerably larger than I, and he broke loose, and then I gave foot chase right across the street from Polish Women's Hall. And there was an alley. When he ran in there, I saw him turn around, and I saw a motion, and I saw the arm come down, and then I saw the knife go past me a couple of feet.
4: The man, a member of the breed, had turned around and thrown his hunting knife at Officer Dugan.
0: I saw the knife thrown... So what I did is, and today I did be against departmental policy, I fired a warning shot over his head and he then surrendered and became compliant. And uh, one of the things I have to get in here is one of the few times in my 28 years with the Cleveland Police Department, they called a citywide alert. And that's any car available citywide and all the six districts or traffic or any units go to Broadway and Marble, a uh, large gang fight. And uh, they had brought in paddy wagons from the six districts, and I remember them just packing them with, you know, arrest. It was just crazy. Policemen, I've never seen so many. We probably wound up with close to 100 officers there.
4: The Brawl made national news with headlines like Slaughter on Broadway and Worst Gang Battle in U.S. Five members of the breed were killed. Just one Hells Angel was stabbed to death, Groover from the New York chapter. 85 arrests were made, including 10 Hells Angels indicted on first-degree murder charges, one of whom was my father. Shortly after the brawl, Matt Z asked to become a prospect with the club, and then later that year, he became a brother.
3: You're involved in this Polish women's hall brawl. You see people taking care of their own people. Brotherhood in the raw as far as uh, having someone's back. Brothers taking care of their brothers, okay? You feel that energy. And it's a culmination of, of all those things. That you can even survive something like that. And Leonera's Groover, you know, he paid the ultimate price. When you witness something like that and are part of it, because you would give your own life if you need to. You want to belong to that energy that you experienced. because those colors, those colors are that man. See, as a member of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club, you are that death head that's on your back. You are representing that and it represents you. Angels forever, forever angels.
4: My dad had a lot of tattoos I never understood. Lulu was one of them. I always thought that it was the name of a woman, not an earlier nickname. But now I also understand where another tattoo on his arm came from. It read, May the earth turn into a ball of shit and be stepped on and turned into dried dog shit dust if your name is forgotten. Yeah, Groover. And by the way, the word dried was spelled D-R-Y-E-D.
3: The next time I saw Butch was in the county jail, and he was in a wheelchair, and uh, he's smoking a joint. And I says, how, man? I says, uh... There is nothing on the street right now. How the hell you got that? He says, "You want some of this?" He says, "Walk down that hallway and punch that cop in the face, and you can come here and we'll share it with you."
2: <laughs>
4: Next time, on relative unknown.
2: From now on, we would make our own rules up as we went along and fuck the world
4: the Angels put themselves on law enforcement's radar during Cleveland's most violent era. So this war
0: began for control, and uh, bombs were a frequent weapon of choice throughout this conflict.
2: I was saying over and over to myself, God, don't let that be something we did. It was a
3: wild period of time in Cleveland, totally out of control. Without the light or the darkness
7: comes. Hold through the night
5: mm, the shadows will run
4: Relative Unknown as a creation and presentation of C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown.
6: I feel a change on the rise. I
10: feel a change on the rise. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's Fashion and Beauty Memo Line Sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People